right, what a great way to start our day, right? You can be seated, those of you who are here, and we are so grateful for those of you that have joined us on Facebook Live. We are, uh, we usually say, by the way, I'm Pastor Chris, and um, it's my privilege to be the pastor of this church, and I want to welcome you, uh, welcome you on Facebook Live. This is our first time, so if somebody runs up here and moves me around or whatever, don't be surprised. We have changed our approach here, so I'll try to be still. Uh, But, you know, I was thinking, we as a church, we say that we're making friends, meeting needs, and making disciples, but I think we're going to add a tagline to that. Uh, At Skycrest, we we are unlike others in that we have uh, lots of toilet paper and hand sanitizer. So uh, next week when we're open, you can uh, bring your friends and we'll give all first-time guests toilet How about that? Um, this week, our uh, president asked us to make today a national day of prayer. And so I want us to begin doing what God has called us to do, and that is pray as a body of believers. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about here a lot is praying through Scripture, letting Scripture be our guide for prayer. And so I'm going to read some verses, if you'll just bow your heads where you are. I'm going to read some verses from Psalm 91, and then I'm going to lead us in prayer. So let's pray. Lord, your word says, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare, from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers. Under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and ram. Father, as we are uniting together in prayer today for those all across, with those all across our nation, we, we first, Lord, pray that for those who have been infected with COVID-19, we ask that you would bring healing to their body. We We pray, Lord, that you would bring peace to their souls and patience for the time of recovery. And Father, we pray that all of these steps, these drastic measures that are being taken to slow down the spread of this virus, we pray that they would be effective. We ask, Lord, that the progress would stop. We pray, Lord, for a return to normalcy. But Lord, we also pray that as this disease has caused us to face our frailty and our mortality, we pray, Lord, that it would inspire people to consider their soul. And Lord, that in the face of this tragic challenge, that people all across our nation and all across the world would turn to you for hope. That we would recognize, Lord, that in every question we have, Jesus is the answer. That in every need we have, you are our all-sufficient. 
And so, Lord, we, we pray that what is said in your word will be true, that you'll bring all this together for good, and in the end you would be glorified that hearts, minds, eyes would turn toward Jesus who gives us hope. It is in the strong name of Jesus that we pray, and everyone here and at home said, Amen. Some of these habits I have to break, right? Um, John chapter 3 contains what you would argue is the most well-known verse in all the Bible. Inarguably, it is the most well-known verse in all the Bible. It's John 3.16. Do you guys know it? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Most of us know that verse. Most of us could probably quote that verse um, if we weren't in a time of stress and pressure. I say that because um, I, I don't know if I've told you this story, but when, when I was a preacher boy, that's what they called us in seminary when we uh, were learning how to lead. Uh, one of my friends arranged for a group of us to go to a, an evangelistic training that was down in Beaumont, Texas. And the idea was that they were going to teach us how to share our faith. And then after teaching us this process of evangelism, they were going to send us out to actually do it. And, and I was so nervous. I have to be honest, knocking on doors is, is not really my thing. It's not my cup of tea. And the guy I was paired with, uh, his name was Mike, a really good friend of mine. He, he was gifted in winning people to Jesus, and he was one of the most committed believers that I had ever been around. And so I was nervous because not only were we going to be knocking on doors, but I didn't want to mess up in front of Micah. And so they sent us to an apartment complex, and I'm not kidding, the complex is, was where uh, kids from the university lived. And it was a Friday afternoon, about four o'clock when we got started. And uh, behind door number one was a party, a real party. And I wanted to go to a quieter door, but Micah said, no, this is the one. And so we knocked on the door and uh, they, they, they didn't turn down the music, but they did indulge us and let us talk. And so Micah began, and as he talked, the whole group came and surrounded the door, and, and they were listening to him, looking at us somewhat like we were circus performers. And when it was my turn, Micah turned to me and pitched it, and this was the key. He said, now Chris is going to explain to you about the love of God. And so I stepped up and said, yes, you know, God loves you. The Bible says in John... 3.16, that God loves you, and I was falling apart. I could not remember that verse. And to my horror, one of the partygoers stepped forward with adult beverage in hand and said, you mean John 3.16? And he quoted that verse word for word. I just went to the van, curled up in the fetal position, and spent the rest of my day there. Anyway, the point is, most of us know that verse. But the question is, do you know the context 
in which that verse is found. Uh, It's in John chapter 3, and if you have your Bibles or your phones at home, have your Bibles here, and you want to turn to John chapter 3, we're going to be, uh, it's going to serve as our launch point today for our study. Now, the story is that a man by the name of Nicodemus comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness, trying to ascertain whether Jesus was legit. Now, Nicodemus needed to do this in secret because he was a Pharisee. As a matter of fact, he was one of the most prestigious Pharisees of them all. In verse 10, Jesus actually addresses him saying, you are Israel's teacher. The Greek there literally says he was the teacher of Israel. So as a leading light of Judaism, he had a reputation to protect. He couldn't really afford to let anyone know that he was even thinking that Jesus might be the real deal. And so as a Pharisee, he represented the old guard. It was a group of people who were committed to the first covenant or the old covenant that said, if you will keep God's law, if you'll follow all the rules, God will smile on you. And this is so important. God will smile on you and His kingdom will come around you. It was an agreement based on compliance. It was quid pro quo, whereby God said, if you keep the law, I will keep you and bless you and cause my face to shine upon you. Now, the reason that Nicodemus came to Jesus to ascertain if he was right about what he was preaching is that the message was that something new was afoot. A radical change was coming about in the way that people related to God. No longer was the worshiper to be conformed to God's law. That was no longer the idea. He was actually to be transformed by the Spirit of God. Not just conformed to the law, but transformed by His Spirit. So rather than the kingdom of God being around them, Jesus said, now the kingdom of God is going to be in them. Not just around them, but in them. And you can, if we could fathom that, it was revolutionary. Jesus was leading them into totally new territory. A new promised land. And so, let's think of Nicodemus what it was like for him. He was kind of like Lewis and Clark, right? He, he was the first in his tribe to walk up to the edge of this new and unexplored frontier. He was asking Jesus to explain it to him. What, tell me about this kingdom. How do I get in? Jesus, you be my guide. And so in John chapter 3, we actually find out what Jesus said to him. He said, first, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Now, Nick didn't get that because Nicodemus was a literalist. Okay, he, t- he took the law at face value. He took Jesus' words at face value. And so he objected saying, what are you saying? We have to go back into our mother's womb and be born again. But Jesus corrected him saying, this refers to a spiritual rebirth. Being born again is a spiritual transaction 
And, and he ultimately explained that this was the way into the frontier of God's kingdom. It was through Jesus, after his death on the cross, that they would be able to enter this new frontier. However, Jesus at this point didn't mention his death on the cross. He actually told him that he had to be lifted up like a snake on a pole. Now look at John chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. John chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Here's what it says. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. So just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Do you know that story? We, we may not be overly familiar with it, but Nicodemus, who was Israel's teacher, would have known exactly what Moses did in the wilderness. And why? But his mind must have been blown trying to figure out how Jesus actually fit into that story. Why was Jesus saying he had to be lifted up like Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness? Now, today we're beginning our series at the cross. And what we're going to do is put ourselves in Nicodemus' shoes. We're going to walk up to the edge of that frontier and we're going to see how this story gives us insight into exactly what Jesus did on the cross. Now, the story is found in Numbers chapter 21. And if you want to follow along, Numbers is, I think, the fourth book of the Bible, Numbers chapter 21. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. Numbers chapter 21, beginning in verse 4. They traveled from Mount Or along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. And then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. And they bit the people. And many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from you. So Moses prayed, the people. And the Lord said to Moses, here's what you do. Make a snake, put it on, make a snake, put it on, up on a pole. And anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So, Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake, and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now, 
let, let's understand the context here of what's happening. At this point in the wilderness wanderings, the people had already stood on the precipice of the new frontier that they knew as the promised land, the, God, the land that God promised to give them. But when they peeked into the promised land and God said, go, they chickened out. Remember the story? They sent Caleb and Joshua and ten other spies into the land and the spies came back and said, it's unbelievable. That is the best land you will ever see. That's what two of them said. Ten of them said, yeah, it's fabulous. It is indeed flowing with milk and honey. But the produce is large and the people are larger. And so they were literally afraid that they would be crushed by the land's inhabitants. So instead of going into the land, as God told them to do, they wandered off. They wandered off thinking, maybe, just maybe, we could enter the land from a different spot. And then it would be more doable. Maybe we would find people more our size, and we could begin there and then go in. So they decided, instead of entering from the southwest territory, that they were going to cross over the Jordan, they were going to walk around and come in from the east. Now, it was a long, long way around. A long way around. And on that journey, which is what we find here, they grew disillusioned. They, they, first of all, you have to think, they, they must have felt bad about themselves for not having the faith to go in the first time God told them to go. And they must have been tired of life in the wilderness living out of their suitcases. They were frustrated. But most of all, they were tired of the food. By this time, you have to understand that they had been eating what we call manna for years. It, it, was, it was a bread-like substance that came down from heaven. It appeared every morning providing just what they needed for the day. No more and no less. And so their fatigue with the way things were going was completely exacerbated by their surroundings. Lawrence of Arabia, you know, the, the British archaeologist, he led a team through that same territory. And he wrote this about that place in the desert. Listen to what he said. This is a place of hopelessness and sadness deeper than all the open desert we had crossed. There was something sinister, something actively evil in this snake-devoted land, proliferant of salt water and barren palms and bushes which neither serve for grazing nor for firewood. So put yourself in their shoes. They're carrying the baggage of shame. They are weary. Soul fatigue has set in. They're going through this incredibly desolate wasteland. What do they do? They look for someone to blame. And of course, they turn to their leader. They turned on Moses. And more importantly, 
They turned on God. Now, here's what we know about that group of people. They had already been given to complaining. And God warned them, just like my dad used to do, he warned them that if they kept it up, he was going to give them something to complain about. And that's exactly what he did. In the midst of their adversity, God sends them more adversity. But this time, he sent it in the form of snakes. Lots of snakes. Venomous snakes. And these snakes invaded the camp. And many of the people were bitten and they died. The wages of their sin was death. And so the group came to Moses and were like, we are so sorry. What a mistake. We repent. Whatever we need to do. And listen, Moses, what we need you to do, we're so sorry. What we need you to do is go ask God to take away these snakes. And that makes perfectly good sense, right? If the snakes are causing death, then we just want them to go away. That is exactly how I would have prayed. That's exactly what I would have asked Moses to pray. I get it, Lord. I'm wrong. I'm never going to do it again. No more complaining. I promise just make these snakes go away. But I want you to think just for a moment what's underneath. Step back from the urgency and think about what they were really asking for. In essence, they were asking God to remove the consequences of their sin. Right? We sinned. Make the consequences of our sin go away. They had been irreverent. They had doubted God's power, and they had complained about God's provision. Pretty strong list. And all of that in the face of God who miraculously delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Remember the plagues, and the crossing of the Red Sea, and the manna in the desert? God was sustaining them in, un, in an unsustainable environment. And oh, by the way, if they had just gone into the promised land the first time He told them to go, they wouldn't be in this predicament at all. In their full-blown rebellion, they were reaping what they had sown. And so God responded to Moses' prayer, to their plight, in a way that actually pointed to what Jesus did on the cross. Now in His grace, He didn't take away the snakes. He didn't make them go away. He didn't eliminate the consequences of their sin. Instead, God provided a different solution. A permanent solution. He told Moses to go out and make that bronze snake. Put it high up on a pole in the middle of camp. And then anyone who was bitten by the snakes that weren't going to go away could look up at that snake and live. 
So, think about this. A snake on a pole delivered them from snakes. If they were bitten, they could look at the snake in faith. They had to believe it was going to heal them. They could look at the snake in faith, and the snake bites would lose their power. Snakes didn't go away, but their bites lost their power. Now, it seems relatively absurd, doesn't it? That just seems crazy. Why deliver them from the snakes with a snake? Well, I think there are three reasons, real quickly. First, it forced them to look in the mirror of their own sin and own what they had done. First, they were bit by the snake. Then they looked at the snake. I'm in trouble because of these snakes, which is a byproduct of my sin. I own that. This is my fault. Second, they were reminded that only God could deliver them. There was nothing that they could do to make those snakes go away. And only God could deliver them. And His way might not be their way, but it would be the way. Only God could deliver them. And then finally, they had to trust the absurd way that God was choosing to deliver them from their sin. God was delivering them from their sin. So, let's go back to John chapter 3. Jesus directs Nicodemus to this story because it points out exactly what Christ would do on the cross. He would rescue us from the consequences of our sins. Not remove the consequences, but rescue us from the consequences. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, sin and suffering did not go away. Jesus didn't make all the consequences of sin disappear. Suffering is a reality. But, For those who look to Him in faith, the power of sin and death would be broken in their lives. They would receive eternal life. They would be born again and enter into the new frontier of God's kingdom. That's what happened at the cross. It made possible for all men to enter the kingdom of God, not by taking away suffering, but by saying, I'm going to give you a way through suffering. Not by taking away the consequences of sin, we still reap what we sow, but by offering us deliverance from our sin. I don't know if Nicodemus got all that at first, but I think when he looked back, and realized what Jesus did on that cross, I think he was able to put it together. And I think there are, there are two facets of Jesus' death on the cross that are prefigured by that story of Moses in the wilderness. Here's the first one. J- just as a snake on a pole delivered them from the snakes, Okay, listen closely. 
Just as a snake on the pole delivered them from snakes, sin on the cross would deliver us from our sin. You say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That can't be right. Like Jesus was sinless. We, we crucified a perfect, sinless God. It wasn't sin on the cross. It was the sinless Son of God. Because Jesus didn't sin. You're right, He didn't. But I want you to look at what Paul says happened at the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made Him who had no sin to be sin. I'm, I'm going to read that again. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about it. Don't, don't, don't try to get out of it. Stay there. Trust God's Word. John Stott wrote about this idea of Jesus becoming sin. He said he was not content to take our nature upon him. He took our iniquity upon him as well. He was not only made flesh in the womb of Mary, he was made sin on the cross of Calvary. Sin. Our sin, the sin of the world, was imputed to Christ on the cross. It wasn't His. He never sinned. That is true. But God put it to His account. God charged Him with our sins, making Him pay the penalty. It would be like someone charging all of their hand sanitizer and toilet paper to your credit card and saying, you don't get any of it, but you're paying the bill. It was His death being lifted on the pole of the cross that would make it possible for all men to be forgiven and come into this new frontier of, that God was creating and enjoy eternal life. The frontier of God's kingdom. Now, just as those people in the desert looked at that snake on the pole and saw it as a mirror where they were looking at their sin. We look at the cross and see in it our sin. Jesus did this for us. He took our place. He who knew no sin became sin. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. You say, well, it's absurd to think that the Son of God loved us enough to come and die on the cross for us. And you're right. 
It is absurd. And that's the second way the cross of Calvary is like the pole in the desert. It's absurd to think that the sinless Son of God would become sin and receive the punishment we deserve. But at the cross, that's exactly what Look at 1 Corinthians 1.18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The idea of those snakes on the pole was absurd. But to those who are being saved from death, it was the power of God. The idea of sin dying on the cross, the Son of God dying for us, is absurd. But for those of us who look to it with faith in Jesus Christ, it is the power of God. God's power is displayed at the cross. And while we still may endure pain and suffering, the consequences of sin and evil, just like the Israelites had to deal with those snakes. The good news is, this is fabulous news, the pain and suffering no longer have to say. Jesus dealt with it. And faith in Jesus overcomes death. And following Jesus, believing in His death leads us to life. At the cross, He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so, we look at the cross for our salvation. We look in the mirror of our sin, and we find deliverance. Here's the, the ultimate truth of Scripture. All have sinned, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, passage into the new frontier of God's kingdom, into life, is a free gift from Christ for those who believe. We look to the cross and receive forgiveness for our sin. So here's the question. Have you placed your faith in what Jesus did at the cross? Do you understand that He took your place? That He who knew no sin became sin? That we could live Those who believe in Jesus, who just look at the cross and trust what He did, will cross over into that new frontier by God's grace through their faith and have eternal life. And if you have believed, the question is, are you living in gratitude for the life that Jesus provides? Will you bow your heads? We're going to pray.
Father, for those who have come to the edge of the frontier, the new frontier of your kingdom, and who are considering what it must be like or to get in, how to get in, and what the process is. I pray, Lord, that today they would understand that simple, simple message. Look to Jesus. Because at the cross, He paid the price. So I pray, Lord, for those who are here and for those who are listening, if they aren't sure, they don't know that they're in your kingdom, that today would be the day that they place their faith in Jesus and look to the cross. And Father, for those of us who have believed, I pray that we would live in the victory that You won through Jesus' death and confirmed in His resurrection. In the strong name of Jesus, Amen. I want to thank you for joining us today, Skycrest. And uh, we will look forward to seeing you next week. Uh, Keep an eye out on our social media platforms, on our website, and we'll let you know how things will go next week. Thank you so much for tuning in and being here. God bless you. Okay, thank you guys so much. Thank you for your patience.